This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. decades ago, companies took on globalization as the way to do business. Countries reached across geographic chasms to form new mutually beneficial partnerships. In the wake of climate and energy issues, political instability, and wars, will a return to regionalization replace globalization? Are we looking at life after globalization? In today's world, What are the risks and benefits of regionalization and globalization? Which solutions make the most sense? My guest today is a global supply chain expert who will share his observations on our global business landscape. Let me tell you about Patrick Daly. Patrick Daly is the managing director of Alba Consulting based in Dublin, Ireland. He works with top Fortune 500 companies in manufacturing, distribution, and logistics services in Europe, Asia, and the Americas to achieve dramatic improvements in their supply chain capabilities and performance through supply chain excellence. Patrick works with clients all over the world to include China, India, Uruguay, Puerto Rico, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, the United States, the UK, Spain, Croatia, and others. His clients include Pfizer, Abbott Vascular, Stryker, Braun, GSK, Merck, Millipore, Octavis, Astellas, Pepsi Worldwide Flavors, Glanbia, Ornua, and others. The host of Interlinks, a weekly radio program broadcast on Dublin South FM, and the YouTube short video series for the week that's in it, Patrick explores international business, supply chain, and logistics around the world. Patrick is also the author of the book, International Supply Chain Relationships, Creating Competitive Advantage in a Globalized Economy, and the booklet, Warehouse Strategy, Design and Operation, and co-author of the recently published ebook. Thriving in the New Business Environment, Why the Strategic Supply Chain Matters. Educated with a Bachelor of Science Honors Degree in Technology, prior to establishing his consultancy business, Patrick worked in manufacturing, engineering design, R&D, product development, and international commercial technical roles in both Spain and Ireland. Patrick, welcome to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Thank you, Dr. Karen. Delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you here as well. And I know that you bring a much needed global perspective. And just to make sure that everyone in the audience understands what we're talking about, I want you to first, Patrick, tell us what is the supply chain? What does supply chain mean? What is it? And how does it affect people and businesses? Well, the supply chain really is a is a misnomer uh, because it's not a chain at all. Really, it's a it's a network. Uh, it's a web of connections and nodes, and it's global. 
And it's important because everything that we've become accustomed to in our day-to-day lives, the products and services that we enjoy, are dependent on the supply chain. And a lot of this remains hidden from view for many, many years, for decades. But in recent years, with a series of crises and emergencies that we can maybe talk about in some detail later, people have become acutely aware of the supply chain and its vulnerabilities. When products and services that we're used to uh, having turn up on our doorstep without interruption suddenly don't turn up, we want to know why. And the reason often is because of events very far away in distance and time that are having effect on our experience uh, day to day. And in the same way as consumers, we experience that, uh, corporations experience that in terms of carrying on their, their business. Thank you for just explaining the basics. The bottom line is while we're waiting for those packages from Amazon or wherever, somebody somewhere has had to ship them, then receive them, and then transport them to us so that we get them in our doorways. And that's everything. Businesses, everything that businesses need and also that individuals need in their homes and in their offices and so on. So in the past, Patrick, there were some benefits to moving to globalization of the supply chain or the supply network, as you're calling it. What were some of those benefits of globalization in the past? Uh, well, I guess there are still benefits to globalization, but we'll, we'll, we'll go back a little bit in, in history, maybe, and see what's happened, uh, where we are and how, how we got here. If we go back to the world before the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall, and particularly if we go even back further than that, so the period, say, from the, the Second World War to the, to the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, Many companies were vertically integrated, and the great expression of that would have been the Ford Motor Company, where they owned everything from the rubber plantations to the iron ore mines to um, the the factories and the retail outlets, and even the the cleaning staff and the catering staff, and everybody was a was a Ford Motor Company employee. In time, uh, companies realized that that way of exercising control of their supply network or supply chain uh, was was very expensive and they began to uh, divest themselves of non non core activities well i think what you're saying patrick is that what started to happen is that there was a wider possibility of additional partnerships that maybe didn't exist before the berlin wall came down and long, long, long time ago when transportation might have been more difficult and so on. So there were more opportunities for people to establish the global relationships. That's what I hear you saying. That's that's correct. So what happened after the, the Berlin Wall was that um, companies were able to find sources of supply and markets far and wide because the world really entered uh, a Goldilocks, Goldilocks period of there was peace, um, there was low inflation, um, there was uh, one single uh, world power, which was the, the United States, and there was uh, stability. And that enabled corporations to set up operations uh, far and wide. And that's how we came to this world of um, what people termed globalization. But we need to be 
careful when we say globalization in the sense that globalization was always a partial process. It was always a patchy process. There were always parts of the world that were more connected to those global networks than other parts of the world. So in terms of its its advocates and its detractors, it was oversold. Um, but that said, that is what happened. So corporations um, gained market, they gained uh, competitiveness, and that was part of the process that led to um, the containment of inflation. So you've often heard it referred to as uh, the great moderation uh, through the 90s and, and the early 2000s. So what has happened um, since and recently is that the globalization itself facilitated the rise of many economies around the world, China most significantly, um, but also other medium-sized uh, economies, the likes of Brazil, the likes of Indonesia, the likes of uh, Turkey, and to an extent Russia, although Russia is a special case that maybe we can we can talk about in 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 an aside. So the rise of the power of these um, countries has meant that they are exerting their own influence in their own areas, and the world has become much more fragmented. And this means that the risks have risen, uh, the geopolitical tensions that are uh, arising around the world are making companies reassess uh, their global supply chain strategies. And they're beginning to realign those uh, strategies as a function of some of these some of these disruptions. And that's leading us to a noticeable process of regionalization. And sometimes we pose the question, is this life after globalization? Uh, and, and, and we say it that way because it's such a change. But really what we're talking about is life after globalization as we have known it. What we're really talking about is a different type of globalization, much more regionalized and much more focused on risk management on stability and security over over efficiency. Um, and this is where we're seeing a kind of a, a, a retraction uh, into regions. So maybe a North American region, European region, the Southeast Asian region, and, and so on. Well, let me go back just a little bit. And I really appreciate that perspective where you're sort of giving us the big picture of it and what's happened over a number of years. There were benefits and you started out by saying it was so expensive for companies to have A to Z, everything that they needed in their organization. Mm -hmm. So they had to reach out to some partners. There were benefits to globalization in the past and also benefits today. What were some of the past benefits? What are the benefits today of globalization? The big obvious benefit was what would be termed maybe labor arbitrage. Um, so labor was cheaper in countries that could undertake um, low-end manufacturing at the beginning, in the beginning. Um, so, for example, to have something made in, in China as opposed to having it made in, in Europe or in uh, the United States, the labor rates may have been one-tenth or even even smaller at that time. That's, uh, that's changing um, now. Savings in 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 costs, um, access to alternative uh, supplies, so that gave kind of a hedge against supply interruption. So having multiple sources of of supply, those would be those would be the principal principal advantages in the early days. And often they came with um, downsides that people 
chose to ignore or didn't fully uh, take cognizance of um, at, at that time. And, and there are still, there are still many benefits and, and those benefits are part of that. This is on the, on the supply side. On the, on the opposite side, globalization opened markets. So many American corporations that went overseas first, they had um, saturated in a way their, their home market. So we're, we're looking for opportunities to um, carry out uh, foreign direct investment to set up factories or distribution centers in other parts of the world um, to access those markets. And for example, Ireland, where I am, has been a great beneficiary of that. Many American multinationals uh, set up operations here to reach markets in, in Europe, in uh, Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and that has been a phenomenon as well. So both on the supply chi- supply side there were um, advantages, and then also on the on the market side there were there were advantages. Those advantages are still there, but the perspective I think is is changing, and the emphasis is is changing currently. Yeah, let's say a little bit about what is uh, changing in terms of perspective. If you want to still have the upside or the benefit of globalization in today's world, what does that look like? What do companies need to be thinking about? Because it's different than how it was back then when it was more of an upside than a downside. We're in a different game um, now. So as I said, these these um, regional powers have have come to the come to the fore. They are causing instability in in different parts of the world, and um, this is making it challenging for um, businesses to carry on in the in the same way. So where they have um, vulnerabilities, they need to be looking at, at, at where they are and um, trying to mitigate some of the risks that are that are involved. So for example, have been talking to a, a prospect, a large um, multinational pharmaceutical company, and they have a production plant in China where they make certain products and uh, uh, ingredients for other products that are used in other plants made in China and not made any place else in their in their global network. So there's a situation that if an issue were to occur, for example, with Taiwan, um, some form of, of, of blockade and sanctions between the West and, and China, um, that's, a, that's a key vulnerability. And in order to do something about that takes a lot of time. We all know, you know, even in, in a in a building project at home, the lead time for something like that's a couple of years. Um, to establish a new production plant, say in a friendlier uh, location or a, or a closer location. So if they wanted to look at Mexico, or they wanted to look at Vietnam, or they wanted to look at some somewhere in 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 the Near East, in Turkey, or someplace like that. What what's the lead time for doing that? I mean, it's going to take two, three, four years. Um, so a lot of companies, I think, are a little bit behind the curve uh, in the sense that the world has changed um, dramatically in the last number of years. Many companies, I think, have not necessarily been paying uh, close attention to that or have not been as proactive in responding uh, to it. Um, so th- th- this is, I think, a, a, a serious situation 
um, that we're looking at uh, currently. And I think companies need to be paying a lot more attention to what's going on out there. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Patrick, because in the past, there were maybe a few big players, so to speak. And you've been mentioning some of the smaller countries that really have a big presence or even big countries that have a bigger presence now, such as China in comparison to in the past. And I think that underlying what we're talking about is something you started to talk about earlier, which is this whole issue of fragmentation and the whole geopolitical landscape and what impact it has. Because if you partner doesn't share some of your values, some of the ways that you think and do business, there could be a breach later on down the line and you don't want to be left unable to provide the resources that you need for whatever your product is. So let's talk about that bigger picture a little bit, the geopolitical landscape, this fragmentation, and what people, what companies need to be asking or thinking about as they're considering their current partnerships today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as as I mentioned, um, and it's curious because, you know, this kind of feeds into politics as as well and you know some concern in western countries um that maybe they are decadent or they are losing influence and so on so uh, two things are, are true at the same time so the, the united states in absolute terms is more powerful militarily and um economically than it has ever been and and likewise um, Europe. But at the same time, they're relatively less um, powerful as a proportion of the total power in the world. So while they have, have grown to maximum, maximum size, other countries, as a result of the globalization driven by the West, by America and by Europe, many powers around the world have risen to a level that now they make up a greater proportion of the world uh, economy and world political power than they ever did before. And we see this manifest in some kind of very strange occurrences around the world. So we have a war in, in, in Europe, Russia invades Ukraine, the West imposes sanctions and expects most countries to row in with that. And then all of a sudden, some very important countries um, like India, the most populous country in the world, fifth largest economy in the world, uh, Brazil, a country with over 200 million people and a very large, uh, economy and other powers of that, of that size are saying, well, hang on a minute. We have a different, uh, view on, on this. So we're seeing powers like that. We're seeing powers like Turkey, which is a NATO member. So it's an ally of the United States and Europe. Uh, and yet they have been purchasing weapons from um, Russia. We see uh, India, um, Prime Minister M Modi was in uh, Washington recently talking to President Biden uh, about possible uh, arms purchases. At the same time, they are buying cheap energy uh, from, from Russia. Um, so we're seeing all of these movements, which are, which are quite strange um, to us. And the reason is because these countries now are saying we are not necessarily going to align uh, in one camp or another camp. Uh, so this is making for quite unpredictable um, conditions. 
that I mean, the, 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 there's an organization called the BRICS, which is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, South Africa, and and so on. And some talk of them becoming some sort of a, a, a counter block to the Western block. And that's not really going to happen either, because there's no coherence between them. So it's not so much that there's a going to be a global um, power block that's going to rival the West. There's just going to be lots of moderately powerful countries that are going to be plowing their own furrow, and they're going to be making alliances here and there uh, on different issues as suits their interests at any given time. So this is the fragmentation we're talking about. So in the context of trying to run international businesses, as we did in the Goldilocks period between 1990 and 2010, that's going to be a lot more challenging. So whereas a corporate headquarters from a, a supply chain global risk perspective may have been able to take the view you know, the world is is stable. The US is the uh, uh, global uh, policeman. Nothing much is going to upset uh, operations. We have a factory in China, or we have one in Taiwan, or, or we have one in, in, in India. But that has changed. And I think that has changed to such a degree and so fast that people have not uh, kept up with it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of work to be done now um, at an accelerated pace uh, for companies to change their approach to how they pay attention to what's going on in the world, how they assess risk, and how um, that knowledge and that intelligence feeds into decisions that they take about where to place their interests uh, around the world. That's the world that we're entering now. This is life after globalization, if you like, our life after globalization as we have known it up to now. Yeah, I would like to add something to that, Patrick, because this is quite interesting. I think that companies, what you're saying, they really need to be even more cognizant of the world political climate and situation and about the partners they partner with and the partners their partners partner with, because these alliances may involve third and fourth parties that normally we wouldn't have to consider or contend with. People are in a position where they're doing more of what fits their personal interest, is what you're saying, and those may not align with, let's say, the interests of the United States or different countries in Europe, as an example. And that's different than how it used to be. It used to be, if you were a friend of the United States, you did not do business with those who the United States might have considered enemies. That's no longer the case. And so people can have multiple different kinds of alliances and you have to think, you know, several uh, paces down the road about what are the implications of that? What might be the downside or what could be an outcome that's unforeseen or maybe even unprecedented? Maybe we haven't seen it before. So I'm hearing those issues as some of the risks that you're really talking about. And this is, I think it's a real challenge for, for businesses because those um, skills, um, those uh, approaches and those, um, that level of awareness is not something that comes natural to a, uh, to a business. This, this is almost like having a department of foreign affairs inside your business to understand what's, what's going on. Because not only is it difficult to predict now what will happen. It's difficult to understand in real time what is actually going on. Because, for example, we saw recently China broker a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So Saudi Arabia and Iran were 
arch enemies at each other's throat. China has never um, been seen to be a peacemaker on the international scene. That's a role that normally was the United States or the United States with, with European powers. Um, and all of a sudden we see um, this development, which is which is quite strange and quite unusual. And it's very hard, it's very hard to figure out what's what's going on. So these are the types of things that people uh, in business need to be cognizant of. And it needs almost um, quite a sophisticated and nuanced understanding of the different regions where you have key interests. So it's going to need, I think, new skills, maybe even new types of people. Um, you're going to need people like, you know, we, we've spoken a lot about, you know, English is the universal business language and you can do business all over with English and everybody rolls in and they speak to you in English with, with American accents, even though they're from other parts of the other parts of the world. And that's that's fine to a degree. But I think to to get a handle on what's going to be going on in the future, you're going to need people who understand the, those uh, localities, who speak languages and who have um, culture and experience um, so that they can understand the nuances. They can help uh, interpret what's what's happening at, at, at different times. And also, I think um, supply chain risk management as an activity, as a function, uh, needs a strategy uh, and it needs to feed into uh, the top table, and it needs to be taken uh, seriously. So I kind of I, I can't kind of stress enough how important this is going to be. And if you listen to uh, the people who who know whatever side of the political spectrum um, they're on. So I was listening today to an interview with uh, uh, John uh, Bolton, who's the former. Um, security advisor in the in the in the Trump administration. So you can listen to him, but you can listen just as well to Hillary Clinton talking about the same stuff from her experience as um, Secretary of State. What's going on out there? This is a, this is this should be a bipartisan issue, uh, and it should also be a common issue of interest between uh, America and its and its European allies. Uh, what's going on out there is quite uh, at the moment is quite is quite serious, and and business I think needs to be needs to catch up. There are a few big corporations who've had the resources and have had the insight, and and they're on this, they're on top of this, but most businesses. Even some of the big names uh, are are behind on this and really need to play catch up. Yeah, that's really a good point. And I think one of the observations I would make about the American mindset in comparison to a European way of thinking about things, Americans very often don't always take a global perspective. When you think about it, our country is so large and we're over here geographically more isolated than the Europeans are because you have multiple countries right next door to each other close enough to be in the U U.S. perspective, like states. And so, yeah. therefore, it's much been much more my experience that Europeans keep up with global news and keep up with the global perspective, and they have their, their hand on that pulse, so to speak. And in addition, they speak more foreign languages than Americans do. And so I think that that helps because when you talk about the translation that's necessary, it's a cultural lens you have to translate through. And if you don't understand other cultures, 
the conclusions you come to probably are not going to be accurate. So in some respects, I think that Europe has some benefits because you've been doing that type of analysis for a long time and you understand the importance of it because you're so close to your neighbors as opposed to the United States. Yeah, the, it, both Europe and America have um, pros and cons in their uh, approach to to this. So um, some of the most globalized companies in the world are American, but at the same time, there's a smaller proportion of American companies as an overall uh, that are involved in international business. There, there, there's a far greater proportion of American businesses who do no business outside America, as say compared to European countries, because it's difficult to go more than a few hundred miles in Europe before you uh, are into a different, um, different country and a different language and different legal system and so on. So, although we're all, well, we're not all, but 27 of us are in the European Union. Even within the European Union, the legal regime and the fiscal regime varies from country to country. And then you have a whole series of countries, some that are more or less associated with the European Union, some that are not at all, um, and they have their own their own systems. So that makes Europeans, I guess, more gregarious. Uh, they do speak more languages um, generally, and they're more familiar with um, different cultural environments, just even moving around the, the continent. And then also we're closer to Russia, we're closer to the Middle East, and we're closer to North Africa. And, and many people would have visited those places. So people in Europe do travel a lot, and lots of people have um, passports, and they've been here, there, and everywhere. America is, what, 330 million people. It's got two massive oceans either side of it. It's got friendly neighbors north and south. And therefore, it is prone to that kind of um, isolationism, not so much as a as a as a political idea, but just as a geographical fact. You know, you're in the big, a big continent, far from from other places. So it can be easy to fall into the trap to believe that the outside world doesn't really affect America, but but it does to a to to a huge degree as well, and. Part of the the issue I think that America is coming to terms with is that despite having uh, such great military power and such great political power, uh, because of the way the world is is moving and how it's it's leveling in terms of um, uh, other economic powers being strong. And the great military advantage not being such an advantage as it was before, because look at the damage you can do with cheap with cheap drones. So you know America's military advantage, although it's massive, um, maybe is not as relevant as it was uh, before. And therefore, the only way really to manage um, uh, the global situation uh, to America's values that align with our values in Europe is through cooperation and collaboration. The track record on that has been has been patchy um, over the last last number of years. So I guess we're 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 entering a, a period where we have this uh, great stability, where our our realization of what's going on hasn't really kept up, and the the political discourse is maybe not taking full cognizance of. The complexity and the and the dangers that are out there, I, I because it feels sometimes it can feel like things haven't changed. It's a bit like you know that ma- magic trick, the, the, the guys where they they pull the tablecloth off the table, and all the all the stuff on the table just stays in the same place. 
uh, it's a bit like that's what's happened. So somebody has actually pulled the cloth from under us, but we're all still standing in the same place. And we don't realize how radically the foundation has changed below our feet. Oh, that's a great picture of it. I think that's exactly a, a little bit about what's going on right now. And you did a great job of just sort of explaining kind of the, the American mindset in comparison to the European mindset on these issues as well. We've been talking about the geopolitical landscape, and there are also other variables that are affecting globalization that affect supply chain and beyond issues such as climate, energy, technology, weigh in on some of those other variables. How is technology, climate, energy affecting the landscape? Um, and another one, we, we talk about climate climate and uh, energy and, uh, and technology, but the great unseen force that's transforming the world is demographics. People are, are still concerned about population explosion and the pressure that that's putting on the planet. But that is not going to be the problem in the 21st century. The problem in the 21st century is going to be aging populations, stagnating populations, and declining populations. And you can see this happening already in countries like Japan. China's population is already declining. So China, to my mind, China is not going to continue to grow and become ever more powerful um, as people fear and overtake the United States as the uh, uh, the first superpower. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and demographics is part of the reason why that isn't going to happen, in, in my opinion. But even here in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, populations are already in decline. In Western Europe, they're still growing, but mostly because of immigration. Population is growing in the United States, but that's mostly because of immigration as well. How do we have dynamic economies when we have aging populations and declining populations? That's a question that's not answered. That's a, a, a pending subject that most developed countries are going to have to face um, quite soon. So one way of addressing it is through immigration. But immigration, as we know, uh, can be problematic in that some people in certain countries don't like it, or there are real practical problems in terms of integration and so on, and whether it's controlled or uncontrolled or whatever. So uh, demographics is, is, is one key issue that we're going to be facing in the future. As you know, I have a sort of like a biblical perspective and lens on the world. And one of the things that I'm keenly aware of was, you know, God's sort of like announcement at the beginning, basically to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Mm -hmm. And I think that some decisions by some countries to really minimize population and be in fear about not having enough resources really that the, the choices that have been made have guaranteed not having enough resources or enough people to do the work to produce the resources. I just find that fascinating. I had wondered a long time ago about China, the one-child policy, and everybody wanted a son, and I said, well, who, who are these boys going to marry when they grow up? I mean, these are just practical issues. And you know, when I lived in Germany, I could see that there was there weren't a whole lot of children running around like what you see in the United States. So there are just choices and decisions that we're now starting to see that that mm -hmm. fruit kind of like grow up and display itself and pre present this new problem. Now, what are we going to do? Yeah, well, even, you know, even in uh, countries that traditionally had 
you know, large families, uh, countries like India, uh, different countries in, in Africa and Latin America. And a lot of that was to do with people had children to look after them in their old age, really. And with the improvement in, in health and with the uh, empowerment of, of women in, in, in particular, um, people choose to have fewer uh, children. And that you, you can even see that in the birth rates in, in Africa. So where they were maybe, you know, a woman would have seven or eight children in a, in a, in a lifetime. Maybe now it's more like three. Um, which is what we used to have in Europe, and now we have one or none. Um, so that, that's and and the issue with that. So whatever the rights and wrongs of it, uh, whether from a religious perspective or our sociological perspective, any other perspective, it's baked in because that's that's done now. Those children that are not being born today are not going to be here in twenty or thirty years. So we, we really can't do a whole lot about that right now. In fact, uh, and and this is this kind of goes into into politics as well. Some of the policies that encourage people to have more children are more kind of social policies that sometimes the people who <laughs> who would advocate people having a lot of children don't like either. So you know you got these you've got these tensions back and forth. So that's that's demographics, and demographics is is a, is a, a shaping force for the world in the future. Um, on the one hand, we'll have that issue that we said, how do we have economies that are dynamic when we have shrinking populations? But on the other hand, if our populations stabilize or actually be, begin to decline, it may take a bit of pressure off the planet because we've been talking about uh, climate change. And I think we're, we're in the middle of an energy transformation and there's lots of arguments about how fast we should go. Should we go faster? Should we go slower? Uh, there was a big controversy in the United Kingdom this week because the, the prime minister announced that we're going to go slower on some things. Whether we go faster or slower or whether the technology is going to be electric or hydrogen or fuel cells or whatever it is, we are in a transition, and I think that is uh, unstoppable. And you can already see it in the way investments are going. So I think for the first time ever this year, the last 12 months, the International Energy Agency published some figures that investment into renewables has overtaken investment into, into fossil fuels. So we're right in the middle of that. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I would say in five, 10 years' time, uh, the energy situation is going to be drastically changed. I mean, even since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, we've seen a massive transformation in Europe. Countries in Europe, particularly Germany, uh, to an extent Italy, and some of the countries in Eastern Europe were highly dependent on uh, Russian energy. And they have uh, reduced that or eliminated it in, in literally a year, a year and a half. So Europe is driving hard towards renewables, and not just not, not as some sort of kind of uh, wokeish fetish, you know, not so, sort of woke fetish. It's a geopolitical imperative that we have energy independence from rogue countries like like Russia and other countries that are quite unsavory as well, the likes of Saudi Arabia or some of the Gulf states or Venezuela and so those countries that 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 produce um, fossil fuels. So I think um, that's going to be that's going to be a major a major transformation. I really do think that we need to slow down a little bit because we have not really built the proper infrastructure for the new sources of energy, and yet many places are clamping down on rules and regulations and what you can and can't do. However, if you 
want to find any, a way to charge up your electric, you know, rental vehicle, especially, it may be difficult to do. And so I think that the demand as far as the laws are concerned have not kept pace with the reality of the availability of the renewable energy sources. And so that's an issue. That's an ongoing issue. It's a practical issue. It's a practical challenge. Maybe you have a massive transformation like that. There are going to be discontinuities and there, there, there are going to be people who want to move faster, people who want to move slower. And then there's just a practical lead time of getting things um, done. There, there are also big um, financial and political issues. So, for example, many pension funds may be invested in fossil fuels that if the transition happens really quickly become worthless. So, you know, those investments, where will they, where will they go? There are countries whose national wealth is built on reserves of fossil fuels, what happens if they have to stay in the ground and become, become worthless? So there are political uh, tensions around this around this as well. So it's, it's, it's not easy, um, and there, there are going to be tensions and probably clashes, maybe even wars over um, the energy transition um, as certain countries lose both political clout and um, financial clout as that as that transition happens, and also that will happen at a corporate level as well, which is I guess why we see many of the fossil fuel companies um, uh, looking to be the ones who pioneer the renewables transition. Absolutely. So, with that in mind, just that whole notion that there, this is a multifaceted issue that we're talking about this whole globalization, regionalization, and so on. How are you? advising your best clients right now in this climate what are you suggesting to them so far as getting prepared being prepared or what to pay attention to and what to do something that maybe you haven't mentioned just yet mm. um i i think they need to um take a strategic approach and have explicit um programs in place where they're looking at their supply chains, but not just at the first tier. So it's it's challenging enough to look at, you know, where am I getting supplies from? Who are my suppliers? And in which plants are they producing these different things that I get from them? Often companies don't have visibility of that. So they know they have a supplier and they know the supplier maybe has five or six plants around the world. And But do they know this filter that I'm using in this machine, which of the plants is that coming from? Is it coming from the plant in India? Is it coming from the plant in Brazil? Where is it coming from? They don't know that. And then they don't know the second and the third tiers behind their own suppliers, people who are making products that they are using but they're sourcing their own materials from some other place. And that is largely invisible. And there's a statistic. So there's a there's a, a supply chain risk management um, software company called um, uh, Resilink, who um, are experts in this in this field and have uh, software um, th that helps companies track and monitor the supply chains. And they say that 85% of supply chain interruptions come from those hidden tiers, not from the first tier. And then we also have all the uh, logistics service providers who are working in between those nodes. So those factories of our suppliers and our factories and our distribution centers, there are many, many logistics service providers working in the, the spaces 
moving the product or storing the product, distributing the product and so on. Um, so th that's very, very complex. And as I said at the very beginning, it's not so much a supply chain as a kind of a complex web and, and network. So companies, I think what I'm advising them to do is to really start to map that and to have explicit programs where they're able to determine what the risk profile is, where it's greater, where it's lesser, and put in place uh, contingent and preventive actions so that if uh, a risk materializes, um, that they're they're ready with, with plans uh, to go. It's a big undertaking. It's it's going to take some investment, and it's a little bit like you know you purchase insurance, and people think, well, you know, I have this expense, but what? How do I, how do I um, understand the return on on that investment if nothing nothing ever happens? So no, no doubt it's going to be a challenge for the risk management teams to argue for the resources and argue that there is a return on on investment. Um, for having those resources allocated uh, to them. But I think if companies look back at some of the events that have happened, so for example, Fukushima, uh, if they look at maybe the, the volcanoes in Iceland uh, that interrupted particularly the, the auto industry, if they look at the blockage in the Suez Canal, if they look at what happened during COVID, some of the costs of being behind the curve when those things happened, were massive and you have to think you know if something else happens and the likelihood is that something else will happen because of all the things we've been talking about because of geopolitical fragmentation because of climate change and because of demographic issues and immigration and so on all of those factors giving us a world where the likelihood and the frequency of these kinds of interruptions are ever more frequent. So I think the return on investment um, will be there if it's done judiciously and if it's done strategically. And that's that's what I'm advising clients. I love that because you're, you're inviting people to become more knowledgeable about how things work and to understand it in a strategic way. It's not enough just to know who your near partner is. You have to know who their partners are, where things are coming from to better understand what the vulnerabilities could be. So when you think about flexibility, when you think about redundancy and you think about other aspects like that in today's world, security and all those kinds of issues, how else would you advise your clients to be prepared for this current context and, and for the future context? Well, I think it's almost a change in, in values or a change in settings. We've always been kind of obsessed with efficiency. Obviously, we shouldn't let efficiency go, but we need to temper our drive towards efficiency with a consideration for security and continuity of supply, which is why we're seeing a lot of these business continuity programs in, in businesses. And that means maybe investing more in certain things. So certain inventories, we might need to have strategic inventories in friendly locations that we can we can access in in emergency it might mean investing in redundancy for example in qualifying several suppliers so the qualification process for suppliers 
say, for example, in pharmaceuticals can be quite onerous and companies say, well, you know, we don't really want to go through that again, but, you know, to go through that and to invest in, in that. And I think because they're going to be investing more in certain capabilities to hedge against these kinds of events, they're going to be looking for efficiencies elsewhere. And those efficiencies elsewhere, I think, are driving a lot more interest in automation. Uh, so I'm seeing a lot of interest in automation in the logistics sector, where which is a sector I, I, I spend a lot of time in, um, but also in in manufacturing. And we have automation of physical process, but also automation of procedural processes as well. Um, and I, I, I did a, an interview recently uh, of a company that specialize in decision intelligence software. And this is where they're using um, AI to aid the, the taking of multiple decisions in the, in the supply chain, and in some cases to actually automate those decisions. So I think the, the technology um, uh, transformation is going to facilitate a lot of this efficiency that we need to offset the investments we have to make in the in the contingency and preventive act actions, and also to offset some of the challenges we face in demographics. Because particularly in factory scenarios and warehouse scenarios, they're finding it very difficult to get people to come to work in them. And therefore, automation and AI and technology is going to help there, notwithstanding the fact that some people are afraid that AI is going to replace us. But we have these paradoxes and these um, contradictory um, or opposing tensions going on at the same time. But that's that's the world we live in and that's the world we have to deal with. Absolutely, it is. And so I know you have a lot of expertise in this area and in this information, and you have resources that people can mm -hmm. access. You have a book, you have a podcast. Tell us about the resources that you have available and that others can participate in. Yeah, so I have podcasts, which is called uh, Interlinks. And Interlinks is uh, an interview-based uh, podcast of 25, 30-minute episodes uh, very international in orientation. So you'll find it on Acast, uh, Apple, uh, Podcast, Spotify, and all the other platforms called Interlinks. And it has a very international uh, flavor and lots of the interviewees are from all over the, all over the world. Um, I also have a video series, which I call uh, For the Week That's In It, uh, which is kind of two, two to three minute quick videos. And I pick a topic that's hot in the week and talk about it and try to put it into some sort of strategic perspective uh, for uh, business people. Again, a lot of that is uh, internationally focused. And then I have my uh, newsletter on uh, LinkedIn called The Strategic Context. And in fact, those, those three things, probably the easiest way um, to pick them up is basically to connect with me on on LinkedIn because although they go out on um, you know YouTube and uh, Acast and so on, I put them all out through LinkedIn as well. So that's probably probably the easiest way. And then the my my book is called International Supply Chain uh, Relationships, and you'll find that on uh, Amazon. And in that, I'm talking about how important relationships are to supply chains because as we said at the beginning going back to the ford motor company they exercise control through ownership and nowadays in supply chains we exercise control through the quality of our relationships with our supply chain partners and that's really the theme that runs through um the book to take a kind of a sophisticated and um 
international perspective on supply chain relationships. Thank you so much for sharing those resources for those who would like to hear more of your wisdom and expertise on this subject. And I have accessed a number of those resources and tools and known them to be very valuable. And that's why you're on the show today, because I really appreciate the perspective and the worldview that you have on the topic that we're speaking about. So, Patrick, what would you say are your additional words of wisdom that you would like to leave for my community of corporate executives? Maybe something that's a wrap-up statement or that you haven't said yet that these executives need to be thinking about. Well, I say to them, uh, the international order is changing rapidly. We're in a new world. Pay close attention to what's going on in, in, in a way that maybe you haven't done before because there are lots of new threats out there, but there are also lots of new opportunities out there. So you have to be aware to be able to uh, take advantage of those. So that would be my key advice to uh, business executives. And I'd also say, even if you're not trading internationally, your suppliers are probably uh, working internationally. So look at your business in in the round in a holistic way and make sure that you ha you you have a good understanding of the international context. Thank you, Patrick. I love the way you said that you're becoming more informed both to mitigate risk and also to take advantage of opportunities. It's not either or, it's not, you know, just one side and not the other side, it's a both and, which makes me think it's probably not so much life after globalization, maybe it's more like life in the midst of globalization. And as you said, it's just changing and showing up in a different way. Exactly. It's a new uh, type of globalization. There will be huge opportunities. There'll be great uh, wins, particularly for companies uh, located in the developed economies that may be lost out to offshoring, who will benefit now from nearshoring and reshoring. So, you know, this is not all negative. There's a lot of positivity in here as well. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Patrick, for being my guest today. I appreciate you being here and everything that you shared with us. And we're going to close down today with a Bible verse that comes from Luke, the 14th chapter, verses 28 through 29. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says, but which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I think that's so relevant to the conversation we've been having today. And Patrick has shared a number of ways to begin to become educated and to count the cost about the current environment and the current climate of business. And so I hope that those of you who are listening today will take heed and that you will pay attention to these new dynamics understand what's going on and make wise decisions for your business, your corporation with the global geopolitical landscape in mind, automation, the energy issues and everything else that we've talked about. It takes planning and counting the cost. Hi, this is Dr. Karen and I'm here today with Yos Snoop, who is the CEO and president of the Bible League. And the Bible League is a ministry that provides Bibles and 
instructional materials in the Word of God, as well as trains teachers in their local language and culture to share the Word of God and to disciple people. So today, Yost, tell us a little bit about the impact of the Bible League. What's going on out there? Last year, I met this uh, lady. Her name was Nimia. Uh, Nimia was born in 49. She became a Christian in 2002. And last year, we were able to invite her in one of our trainings. At the end of that meeting, she stood up and shared her testimony. She said, this is the first time I received a Bible for my own. And I'm equipped to share the Word of God with others. I thought by myself at that point, that's why we are a Bible League. That's why God called us to be in ministry, to serve people like that and to equip them with the right materials and with the Word of God. Oh, thank you so much, Yos, for sharing that story. And what I want to let everyone know is you can be a part of this movement as well. You can go to BibleLeague.org to find out more about the ministry and also to donate to the ministry. There are lots more stories like the one that Yos just shared today about lives that are changed and impacted for God through Jesus Christ. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.